American Battlefield Trust members have helped save 50,000 acres in 24 states. This land stretches chronologically from the Lexington Green to Appomattox Courthouse and geographically from Minnesota to New Mexico. If you would like to help save America's battlefields, please log on to battlefields.org. Shepherd University's George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War and Department of History invite undergraduate students from across the country to come and spend a semester at their historic crossroads in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. Their semester-long Civil War experience will immerse a select group of undergraduate students in collaborative learning, interpretive field experiences, digital humanities projects, public history programs, and a war and society approach to military history. For more information, please visit shepherd.edu slash Civil War Semester or contact the George Tyler Moore Center via phone at 304-876-5429. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is John. I am the Tattooed Historian, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Tattooed Historian Show. We've been going pretty steadily here now for a number of weeks, and I'm so appreciative of all of you who have tuned in, uh, liked the podcast, subscribed to it, rated it. It's been a tremendous thing for me to go through. It's been a great experience, and I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I'm finally over that little cold that I had. It's that time of year when I have uh, stuffy nose and a sore throat. And at the same time, my guest today on the, on the show, she had just gotten over a cold as well. So it must be going around the history field right now. But I finally got around to speaking with Anna Kiefer about the Woman's Land Army of America during World War I. It's a great discussion, and we go over a lot of things involving, uh, women's roles at that time, how they were seen by the public and by their peers, and uh, what exactly were some of their duties. Uh, I did not know that there were 15,000 members of the Women's Land Army of America during World War I. That may not sound like a lot, but for a different kind of a social movement involving agriculture, that, that's pretty big for that era. So we went into a deep discussion about that as well. We went uh, we went on for about 40, 45 minutes. And uh, I actually met Anna last year at a talk in, at the Oatlands down in Virginia, just south of Leesburg. And uh, she's a tremendous speaker, and I really uh, enjoy hearing her talk about subjects like this. She's usually an 18th century person, so going ahead to World War One is a little bit different for me to uh, experience with her. But it's a, it was a great time, and uh, I really enjoy our talk. Very little sniffs, uh, no sneezes, no coughs, so we got through it. Uh, we got through the cold season so far, and uh, we, we really enjoyed speaking, and we spoke at length before and afterwards as well. So I want to thank Anna Kiefer for being on the show, and I really hope that you enjoy the program. It's a different look at a uh, woman's roles in Edwardian America, uh, and it's a, a fascinating subject and one that has a lot of research potential out there. So if you're a student who's really into women's history or into the World War I era, uh, early 20th century progressivism, uh, you know, women's rights, this might be a little thing for you to write a, uh, a thesis about or, or something like that for a class. There's so much information out there that's still not been found. So you might be able to find a lot on it. So without further ado, uh, I want to welcome Anna Kiefer to the show, and thank you all for tuning in to the program. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is a great, great topic and a, a great episode, and I'm so glad that we finally were able to talk with Anna about this very important subject. So please enjoy. Thank you again for tuning in.
Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in again to the Tattoo Historian Show. Uh, this is going to be a great episode. I have a great friend on here. Anna Kiefer's with me, and she's going to be talking to us about the Woman's Land Army of America in the Great War. Uh, Anna, thanks for being on. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. I, I really appreciate it. And I know a bunch of my listeners uh, have heard of you before uh, or have heard me say I'm going to have you on for the last two weeks. And then we both got sick and uh, we finally got around to doing the interview. Uh, but can you uh, give everyone a little bit of background on you? Sure. Um, I, uh, well, there's, there's a lot of background here. Now, <laughs> um, I, I held a bachelor's uh, in history from Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, uh, and a master's in history, surprise, um, from the University of New Hampshire in Durham. Um, I have started, originally started uh, the, it, working in the history field in museums, uh, the Virginia War Museum in Newport News, uh, the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, um, places like that. Um, and then uh, after the birth of my daughter, I, I kind of switched gears for a little while, um, stayed home with her, uh, and then found that I was not meant to be a stay-at-home mom, bless them. Um, really, truly, it's a hard job. It was not for me. So uh, I went um, and applied for a job teaching at Lord Fairfax Community College in Middletown, Virginia. Um, and so I was an adjunct there uh, for about nine years. And then just this past August, was hired at a, uh, a classical charter school in Mount Airy, North Carolina, uh, for those of you who don't know about Mount Airy, it is Andy Griffith's Mayberry. Uh, so I am literally, I am living about a half an hour um, from Mount Airy near Winston-Salem, um, where I'm teaching history and English um, and a senior capstone. And I still, you know, working on history, still, still doing that. Um, and in my spare time, what little there is, um, I am a French and Indian War uh, and Revolutionary War living historian, um, and I also have have been diving into this uh, the Woman's Land Army of America because World War One is amazing. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and, and a little about me. I've always I've always seen uh, photos of you online in 18th century stuff, and then a couple years ago, when I found out that you were talking about the Woman's Land Army, it's like wow, that's a that's a switch. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and I actually blame the the War Museum, the Virginia War Museum. Well, I don't want to blame, but I can thank perhaps the Virginia War Museum for that. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I did in the education department there was we did all of our programs in uniform. Um, and I had an Army Nurse Corps uniform uh, from World War One. It was a reproduction, um, and I had done that for a long time. Um, but nursing, I, I, it wasn't really something that interested me. It, it was just, it, at the time, it was just a uniform to wear. And I wanted to learn more about what women did in World War I. Um, I grew up in rural West Virginia, uh, canning, farming, you know, all that other stuff. I, when I lived in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, you know, lots of farm, big farm community there too. And I'm like, what did people do? Like, what did people do in, during World War I? What did women do? Um, and I stumbled up across the WLAA, the Women's Land Army of America, and that was it. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to learn more. That was so, it. You had, so that, I did. you had that connection with it because of where you grew yeah. up. Absolutely. It was, you know, and it, you know, it was just one of those things where, you know, how do you, how do you eat? Well, I mean, I've always been interested in military logistics. Um, that's my master's thesis is in military logistics of the Seven Years' War. Um, how do you eat? How do you, you know, how do you do those sorts of things? And so it just kind of came across that I was like, oh, look, here's all of these things that are happening that you, know, you have, you know, 4 million men who are being called up in the draft. How are, how is a very non-mechanized community um, or a very non-mechanized, uh, you know, country mm -hmm. um, going to continue to produce food uh, when a lot of farm workers are going overseas so yeah and i think that's another reason why you and i get along is because it's kind of like uh we're a mix of historians and foodies at the same time absolutely uh, usually when really. i was in the field i would cook for everybody so you know i, I just love the food history as well oh yeah absolutely more food uh you know unfortunately like during the 18th century you know women women didn't cook but that was not something that women did for the armies that was soldiers cooked for themselves mm. um but you know, in the mod the modern era, 
food man let me tell you oh yeah oh yeah yeah that's that's why i was like such a big fan of like anthony bourdain and those and and those types of uh people who yeah. went around talking about culture but also had a, a love for for the food because obviously that's what he did but uh that ties into culture so much and we often forget Absolutely. about how how we find the intersection between food and culture and food and history uh, oh absolutely well. yeah which makes this which makes this uh discussion so interesting for me and i'm sure uh many of those who are listening uh that you know we try to think about we just came off of the centennial world war one and now we're trying to think about other people who were involved in world war one who weren't on the western front you know and and what would uh what would you have done if you would have been here in the united states to help the war effort and the woman's land army is one of those great stories it's too often forgotten, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, the Women's Land Army is still in existence in 1919, so we are still in their centennial. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they aren't dissolved until uh, until about July or August. I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, I do actually have a date, uh, mm-hmm. September 26th, 1919. Um, so they will still be around through, you know, through the end, you know, almost the end, almost into the beginning of October of 1919, um, which is, you know, we're still in that centennial anniversary of that. Right, right, absolutely. And for those of you listening very hard, you can hear some kittens in the background, some kitty cats. sorry. No, no, no. (laughs) Tell tell everyone uh, real quick before we get into this real quick, uh, what's the names of your cats? Uh, well, I have four. Oh, you have um, four. Two, okay. I do. I, I, you have two. I do. <laughs> I, no, no, I have two kittens and I have two older uh, boys. Oh. Um, I have Porkchop the cat, who's the big one. I have Oscar Wilde, who's uh, my little big boy. Uh, but then we just recently got two kittens, um, and they are Vimy and Verdun. There you go. So. Yeah. yeah, and that was unfortunately that was Verdun, who's the bad cat, um, and picking on <laughs> on big cat Oscar. So I, I'm sorry, I apologize. No, no need to apologize. No need to apologize. <laughs> I just thought background. I would. I thought they wanted an introduction, so we went with it. Uh, they they're very well way. Well, knowing Verdun, he's he's a big see me see me kind of person. Oh so. yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't want he wouldn't want to be on my podcast. He wouldn't be on the YouTube channel later. Um, oh, he would. <laughs> um, so we're not going to go into like, you know, how did World War One start? Because that would be a 10 hour presentation of how everything got away. But as far yeah. as the uh, the woman's land army is concerned, we got to go all the way back to when to start this conversation. Um, well, a, a really good time. I mean, really good time to start. This is uh, is in February, um, actually. Well, what is I what is I don't even know what today's date is. Isn't that terrible? It's the 17th. Actually, we go to uh, February 20th, 1917. Okay. Um, and uh, there were actually food riots in New York City. Um, and in and then later in other places as well. Um, these riots spread out of New York City into Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and Chicago. Um, you know, this is not something, you know, food riots are not something that we really think of when we think of America in the early 20th century, um, you know, we have you know, wartime inflation where that had severely taxed, uh, you know, the limited budgets of households. Wages weren't able to keep pace with rising prices of food. Um, and one housewife had noted uh, that in 1916, um, she paid an average of 76 cents per meal, which was $22 a month. Wow. Um, which we look at saying $22 a month, okay, but when you average in a $40 a month wage right. with at least $15 a month rent, you know, you you are really, you know, trying to find, um, you know, where are you going to find your, you know, find your, you know, your food, your, your food budget, there isn't a whole lot of, there isn't a whole lot of wiggle room there. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's 1916. In 1917, those prices are going to go up to $1.99 a meal or $59 a month. And that is, again, well over um, your average $40 a month wage. Um, So these sorts of things, you know, begin to have an impact uh, on the way, uh, you know, on the way Americans are, you know, are, are, are spending on the way they're seeing food. Um, you know, and this is across the board for, you know, all, all basics, meat, onions, potatoes, um, cabbage, even. Mm. Um, so, you know, these are things that, that, you know, one, I think there's, there's one woman, not I think there, there was one woman who noted, 
um, that a D in Washington, D.C., she noted that her family had been living off of oatmeal, bread, and coffee for two months. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, incredible. so that's, you know, this is this is February of 1917, and this is literally just a few months, you know, in the United States is, you know, they are on, you know, they're on that move towards getting involved in the war. Right. Right. You know, and in, in fact, the New York Times, there was an article in the New York Times when the U.S. enters the war in April. Uh, you know, the, the Times asks, how are we going to feed our allies across the water and have enough to le uh, left to feed ourselves? The crops of 1917 will decide whether the world shall be fed or starve in 1918. Mm. So there's already oh, yeah, a logistical just... nightmare going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were problems with, uh, there were freezes in Florida and Georgia. There were shortages in railroad cars that were creating this crisis. Um, you know, it's just kind of this uh, perfect storm of, of, you know, issues between, you know, war, uh, war speculators manipulating the supply. Um, you know, European agriculture, of course, is, you know, by this point, you know, we're, oh, I have to math, they're three years into the war, um, mm. you know, American grain and vegetables are being shipped overseas. So, you know, there's just this, you know, just really, you know, lots of issues with food and food, you know, food number, I don't want, not numbers, but uh, food, the food supply, and then the food prices reflect that. Right. Yeah. It, it that was just such a strain because, you know, yeah. Europe, Europe is being blasted away and farmers fields that we know today were, were battle zones. And, Absolutely. Uh, and now you're getting a fresh you know, group of troops who are going to be coming over. No one knows how many at the time. And, right. and we can't even feed our own civilian population at that time. You know, right. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. Uh, when when this uh, this brings about not only, you know, the idea of the woman's land army, but does it also bring about like an idea early on of like social change because of this? Um, well, one of the things that we begin to see, especially, you know, after, you know, when when the United States gets involved in April, you know, there there is an increase in other war work as well, which has better wages and benefits than farming does. Um, so this is going to pull already scarce farm workers off the field. Um, now, there were some proposals um, that, you know, were kind of put out there. There's a great agricultural army, you know, people who were unfit for service overseas, you know create this agricultural army, well, we can get prisoners of war to work in the field, which we do see in World War II, but it's April of 1917. How many prisoners of war does the United States actually have mm -hmm. is the right. good question. Uh, right. None. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, states, um, states will actually begin to mobilize first um, towards this, you know, kind of, okay, what can we do to help um, you know, this, this, this food crisis, uh, South Carolina had actually set up a commission um, to start looking at how to solve this before a declaration of war, um, as did um, Indiana, Michigan, Massachusetts, and New York. Um, but once this began, you know, women mobilized quickly. Um, uh, you know, this, the movement um, towards figuring out the, the food issue uh, was embraced by suffragists, uh, Girl Scouts, the Red Cross, uh, the Women's Trade Union League, the DAR, um, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, colleges like Vassar, Bryn Mawr, and Goucher, these are all women's colleges. Um, some of them are still all women's colleges. Uh, Bryn Mawr, for example, Goucher is now co-ed. Mm -hmm. um, but it was this idea then of okay, how do we, you know, how do we fix this? How do we go in and, you know, what, what can we do to help here? Um, and so this is what we, you know, we see the United States also, you know, the, or the government itself trying to figure something out. Uh, home gardens. Um, in August of 1917, we see the creation of the food U.S. Food Administration. Um, this is led by Herbert Hoover, um, you know, who's this, you know, the, the great engineer. Right. Um, he uh, was already directing supply operations in Belgium. Um, so he was called in to be, uh, basically, if we want to, you know, we can call him the food czar, because uh, uh -huh. he's called in to help direct this huge, you know, kind of process of how do we create this. Um, so there's a push for home and school gardens, uh, for canning. Um, one of my favorite uh, propaganda posters from this time uh, was a, uh, as a, a poster that has uh, can, you know, the can, canning jars 
And uh, it says canned fruits, vegetables, and the Kaiser too. And <laughs> there amongst your canned peas and carrots and green beans is this Kaiser Wilhelm kind of all curled up inside of a canning jar. Wow. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of this push toward, you know, uh, we also have the conservation of food, like meatless Mondays, uh, which many of us are still familiar with. Yes. Uh, you know, we don't have meat. You don't, don't eat meat on Monday. That actually comes out of World War One. Okay. Uh, wheatless Wednesdays, you know, to try to cut back on the on the amount of wheat. Um, so there's this really big push kind of across the board by, um, you know, private groups like the DAR, uh, you know, the federal government. Um, you know, how can we, you know, how can we solve this labor shortage and this possible food shortage? So this is all across all social strata, basically coming together to try to get this done? Um, it, it's more of an upper to middle class uh, movement, mm. um, you know, because again, you know, low, you know, lower, you know, lower classes, um, you know, this is something that, you know, can canning home gardens, those were things that people already did right. um, in farming communities. Um, so this is something that you see more, you know, when you look at um, the ladies of the DAR, um, or the, you know, or the ladies of the suffragist movement, um, you know, they aren't, they aren't of the, the lower rungs of society. Yeah. Um, although, you know, there is kind of, there's this, uh, kind of interesting, uh, commentary on the women who were looting, um, during the food riots, the police struggled to maintain, maintain order. They were called mobs of foreign women. Um, <laughs> wow. and it, yeah, yeah, mobs of foreign women as they, you know, raided stores and broke windows. So, you know, there is there is some class, there is a, definitely a class issue here. Um, we see in Virginia the the governor's wife, um, you know, kind of gets involved. She will later sponsor um, some uh, some ladies or some young women to go attend the, uh, the the training camp at the University of Virginia. Um, you know, and again, you know, college with college age women or college women, Vassar, Bryn Mawr, you know, these are, these are also girls from, and young women from a very, you know, from a good middle to, you know, upper middle class household. So, mm -hmm. um, there is, there is a, a kind of a society issue here too. And there's a learning curve because a lot of these girls probably never handled farming before. Oh, absolutely. There is definitely a learning curve. Um, and it's one of those things, too, where not only have some of these women not handled farm equipment before, um, but many of them, you know, because they are women, um, they're believed to not be able to do the heavy farm labor. Um, you know, at first they were relegated to just, uh, you know, picking, um, you know, going through the rows and, and pulling weeds or, you know, just kind of picking, uh, picking corn. Um, you know, there was this, uh, this, you know, women were considered too fragile for heavy labor. Um, they weeded radishes, they hoed rows, um, and many of them really wanted to be put to work on heavier tasks. Um, and in some places they were. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was, that was a good thing too. Um, there was, uh, was uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, well, uh, you're, you're re uh, your listeners, I almost said readers, sorry, <laughs> uh, your listeners may be familiar with the author Esther Forbes. Um, if you're not, she, uh, she wrote Johnny Tremaine, which is kind of one of those books that I think uh, lots of children of, of certain generations, I know a lot of Gen X, uh, baby boomers and Gen Xers read Esther Forbes' Johnny Tremaine. Right. Um, she, uh, she was actually a farmerette. Um, and she worked on a 500-acre uh, farm near Harper's Ferry, uh, West Virginia. Okay. Um, she worked uh, near Charlestown, hmm. um, and you know, and she she noted um, that uh, that these these women did everything. They quickly learned the life on a farm. Uh, they cut corn and wheat. They picked and packed apples. They drove horses. Uh, they mended fences. They painted roofs. Um, and, and in fact, Forbes herself was one of the rare uh, female teamsters uh, to wow. work on a farm. So, yeah, so they, they really, you know, these, these young women stepped up and, and in not just young women, but mostly young women. But they, they really stepped up and did, did a lot of, of the heavy labor um, involved on farm work. Yeah, this, this story as a whole reminds me of, I saw a book one time that was about, uh, the things like Rosie the Riveter's mother did in World War One, 
you know, yes. that they were factory workers, et cetera. This is almost like the forerunner of the Victory Garden on a grand scale, you know, on, Absolutely. A, on a huge scale. And uh, it, it's such a, a wild idea at that time, like you say. And and you, you brought up the term farmerette. Where does that come yes. from? How is that brought about? So that is, that's kind of, that's a lot like the term, uh, suffragette. Um, that term, um, was meant to be derogatory. Um, you know, yeah, it was just kind of, oh, aren't you, you know, uh, you know, at adding the end of et to something, you know, it's kind of like, oh, aren't you cute? Um, so you're not, you're not, you're not there. You're, you're a a second tier. Right. Right. Um, yeah, so so these women land workers, um, you know, they they first, you know, even before they are the farmerettes are, you know, what we call the farmerettes or the Women's Land Army of America, is actually created. They were called farmerettes, and it's a contraction of farmer and suffragette. Hmm. Um, and originally, this was a sarcastic term um, that uh, was used for Alpha, uh, Alva Vanderbilt Belmont's group of young society women um, who tried to establish a suffrage farm colony. Um, you know, they is basically, I always, I always imagine this in my head whenever I've read about it. I imagine it kind of as Marie Antoinette um, and Le Petit Trianon uh, where they're all pretending to be these, you know, peasants and they're all, you know, pretending to live this country life. Right. Um, and this, uh, you know, this, this, farm colony was a spectacular failure um and the newspapers just had this great you know great fun with this and so this was something that these young ladies well these women in general um would have to live down this reputation of being frivolous Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. you know that they were really there to do something you know to do to do something serious Mm -hmm. um and even before you know in the fall of 1917 um, the, uh, agricultural department, um, uh, there's a, uh, assistant secretary traveled from, or to up to New York from Washington, DC to kind of investigate this phenomenon of young college women working in the fields. Um, and, uh, Carl Scherz Vrooman was his name. Uh, he was impressed. He said he likened these young ladies to the Russian battalion of death. And he said, you are a credit to yourself, to your sex and to your country. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so it's was, it was pretty, you know, people are like, oh, hey, we can, you can do this. And, and it's also based in part too, um, there is the uh, women's land army in England mm-hmm. uh, that ha- that's been going for a while. Um, and so there was the, there was already a precedent that was set in England. Um, and so when just before Christmas of 1917, um, the women's land army was created, um, you know, that was one of this idea, you know, one of these ideas was looking at what was going on in England and saying, we can create this as well. Hmm. Was this, was this truly a nationwide movement or was it a, a yes. geographic locations? Okay. Um, no, it's definitely a nationwide movement. Um, within the, few, the first few weeks of 1918, um, there were, uh, Women's Land Army of America chairmen. Uh, they appointed in, uh, 39 states. Mm-hmm. Um, which included Virginia, Maryland, uh, the District of Columbia, North Carolina, uh, New Mexico, California, um, all over. The, uh, it was a hard sell in the South, though. Um, it was acceptable uh, for some people to, you know, for for farm wives mm-hmm. to work or farm, you know, farm girls to work on a farm. Um, that was okay. Right. Um, it was one thing for women to work in a home or a kitchen garden. Um, but when it came to paid labor, mm-hmm. uh, that was something quite different. Oh, um, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, in Maryland, uh, the farmers in Maryland said that they, um, they were okay. Uh, they were, they were much more, it was more acceptable to hire, um, to hire African American female labor. Mm-hmm. Um, but white female labor was not acceptable. Wow. So was this was this mainly a, a white movement, or was this it, was this was this was? I have not. Um, I've you know I'm still there's still a lot of research that's out there. Um, there is a fantastic book um, by Elaine Weiss called Fruits of Victory on this subject, and that's where I got started. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, but there's there's still I think a lot more out there 
Um, it's kind of, oh, there's definitely a lot more out there. Um, but I, I have not seen photos or, uh, or images or, or even anybody writing about um, young African-American women participating in this, in this program. Mm. Now that doesn't mean it, that it does, it's not there. It just means it hasn't been found yet. Right. Right. <laughs> so, right. Um, but from what I've been able to tell so far, this is a, um, is a, is a, is a white, uh, middle to upper class, uh, movement. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know that the women's land army mm -hmm. in Britain, uh, they they had like their own style of uniform and all that. Did the Women's Land Army have that? Did they have like a certain look about them when they went, you know, and have you know certain kinds of coats that they wore or uniforms in general? They uh, they did. Um, they do have a uniform or a uniform. I should say a uniform was created. Okay. Um, I believe there may be only one or two left in existence. Um, and I, that has to do with the fact that the uniform wasn't really, um, wasn't really put together, uh, until, uh, late 1918, early 1919. And by mm -hmm. that point, you know, there is kind of the, there is a decrease right. in the need, um, for farmerettes. Now they're, they're still there. Um, but when you look at images, um, uh, and you read about what they're wearing, uh, you know, you see women wearing, you know, women are wearing, uh, in the South, women are wearing skirts. Um, uh, and girl, you know, Girl Scouts wearing their Girl Scout uniforms. Uh, we, but we see pants, a lot of pants, overalls and bloomers. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was something that, you know, that the people commented on, they were trouseretted farmerettes. And for some places, so for some people that was quite scandalous. They were wearing yeah. their bifurcated garb. Hmm. Um, you know, like there are all these, these kind of interesting you know, ways of kind of saying that, oh my goodness, they're wearing pants. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Bifurcated garb, they're, you know, pants and I can't believe they're, you know, in fact, there's a, on the 6th of June, 1918, uh, there's a little blurb published in the Richmond Times Dispatch. This, you know, I don't, <clears throat> depends on how you want to take this. Um, I once loved a maid and my love was warm. Upon her I showered gifts and goods galore, but I've seen her in her farmerette uniform and I do not love her anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's just quite, quite, in, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, but it's also this idea of comfort, um, you know, and like I said, women in the South, uh, these young ladies, uh, there's a very large group, uh, a farmerette group out of uh, what's now the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Um, it was a women's college um, in 1917. Uh, and the photos all coming out of there, they're all wearing skirts. Um, and again, it's, mm. uh, you know, this is, we're still quite a few years before women were allowed to vote. Um, and, you know, so wearing, wearing pants, working paid labor, um, you know, this is, this is something that was really unusual for the time. And I, I think we, we tend to forget that, um, in our, you know, in our, you know, excitement overall, I, I, you know, sometimes tend to forget that in my excitement over this, I'm like, why can't they wear pants? And then I realize what time this is, um, right. and you know, what's, what else is happening in, in the world? I and mean, women can't even vote when they're doing this. So, right. um, so it, it's kind of a it's, it's kind of a really big deal when you really stop to think about it. It really underscores the the uh, underlying progressive movement involved in it. You know, whereas yeah. like some of these women are are wearing pants now, and that's that's scandalous at that time. But it's also a a forward looking part of culture. And and things to come later, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, and and that's the thing. Like, this is one of the reasons why so many suffragists, um, you know, had kind of picked up the banner of the farmerette um, of the Women's Land Army, um, was because they saw this this tied in, mm -hmm. um, this tied in with their with their own mission. Right. Um, and so it was, you know, that was, that was something that they, they, you know, then raised money to go into these programs, um, to help, you know, right. kind of ha to help pay for housing and things so that farmers would hopefully, you know, accept this, you know, female labor. So it was, it was definitely a big tie in. It's so true. I, I've often, when I have uh, run across some things about the woman's land army, you know, I've often had this photo in my head or this, this artistic rendition in my head of a, 
a, a female in the in the pose of Rosie the Riveter flexing her muscles, but she's got like dust all over, her, you know, like working the fields and doing all that. She's the first, you know, really uh, female to go out there and do that hard labor like that and to get national notoriety for it. Right. And and in some cases, not such good notoriety. Right. <laughs> right. You know, like our little, well, our little clip there about I saw her in her uniform and I don't love her anymore. Right. Um, right. You know, but but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, and I think, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, interviews like this, um, you know, will inspire people to go and, and to learn more. In fact, um, I was kind of on a little bit of a lecture circuit uh, last year in Virginia and I was talking with people. And, uh, you know, and, and I would have I would have people come up to me after and they'd say, you know, I think my grandmother was a farmerette. I have a picture of her working on a farm when she was in college. And I asked where and they said, oh, she went to school in Lynchburg. And I was like, oh, my goodness, there was a there was a farmerette program at the college in Lynchburg. Huh. Um, so it very well may have been, uh, you know, that her, her great grandmother or I think it was her great grandmother may have actually been a farmerette. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just kind of interesting, you know, to kind of make those connections to, uh, to learn more about, you know, who they were, who these people, who these women were, right. um, you know, they, there are, um, you know, when we, when you look at the numbers, um, there are about 15,000 members, mm-hmm. um, only 200 in Virginia. Um, and uh, as you can tell, I'm sure most of my research is, is centered around Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but yeah, there were, you know, there's a, it's still a, it's small it's still a small group when we when we really stop and we think about it um you know 15,000 members across the entire country is still a really small number it is. um yeah so um and you know and but they did what they did was you know kind of a it was it could be a it could be a really it could be a really big deal I and mean, they did um do a lot to kind of um, to feed local, you know, especially local, uh, local things. Uh, Winchester, Virginia had a, had several groups. Um, one of the big, uh, apple orchard owners up there is SL Lupton. Um, the largest apple orchards in Virginia, as a matter of fact, employed farmerettes, um, to harvest and, and ship his fruit crop out. So wow. yeah, this was something that, you know, was, was kind of, you know, people, they're very progressive. There were, there were very progressive minded, uh, farmers who had to get involved with this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They had to be, I mean, it's basically like Wilson's idea of, you know, this cultural thing. Cause he's, he's seen as a progressive at that yes. period. And even though there'll be women out, out front, you know, saying, you know, we want the vote and give us the vote. He's, he's still seen as a progressive and yet this is a, a progressive movement of its own. And what would you say in your opinion is their impact you know, they, they were 15,000 of them across the country. And that may seem minuscule to some people, but right. 15,000 women taking on this uh, huge undertaking has to make an impact somewhere. Well, I mean, the, the, the impact I think is, is more than anything. Um, it is, it's, it's the, this, uh, you know, what will happen again in 1943. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, the, the reinstitution of the women's land army during World War II. Um, and, and I, and that's what, but for example, you know, I was talking about Esther Forbes. She actually had, um, a meeting, uh, at her house in 1941. Um, and she was living, um, uh, in, uh, she's living, uh, in Massachusetts or she's from Massachusetts and living in Massachusetts. Um, in 1941, and she has this meeting, um, she had urged the reorganization of the farmerette program uh, to solve the new war shortage, and because they, they knew that there was going to be a major, you know, cri- there was going to be another crisis in, you know, in, in employment, I don't want to say employment crisis, but I guess in some ways it is, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, she, she began to urge that in 1941, um, and we do see the reemergence uh, of the Women's Land Army in 1943. Um, so it is one of these ideas too that the women um, who you know who did this, who kind of pioneered, whether it's the Women's Land Army um, or it's you know working in uh, working in, in munitions factories um, or whatever they were doing, you know, it's this kind of uh, push towards well, you know, we have this precedent that's been set, and it's it's there. Um, so when in 1941, when the United States gets involved in World War II, 
we can go back to that and say, well, we did this before. Here are, you know, here's how this was set up. We can do this again. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually a great image uh, from uh, World War II era. Uh, it's in the National Archives um, of a farmerette from World War One. Uh, the, the mother, she's a mother, standing next to her daughter who had joined the Women's Land Army movement in World War II. And they're both wearing their respective uniforms of World War One and World War Two. So it's oh, kind of really that, cool. that next, yeah, it's that next generation. Um, you know, and by the time we hit, you know, ni- I mean, here, you know, by the time we hit 1941, those young women who had worked on farms, um, in you know, in World War One, were the mothers of those young women who then went off to work, do do war work in World War Two. So, I think that more than anything else, I think that would be the the most important and the la- the most lasting impact um, that these that these young ladies and these women would have. That's fantastic. It's 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 such an overlooked thing in many cases, and and it's such a it's it's a topic that you know we're constantly learning more about because Absolutely. as you say, you know, you, I've, I've witnessed one of your talks and I've, I've seen, you know, uh, people talk about it afterwards where they're like, Oh, I wonder if my great grandmother took part in that. Cause she worked on a farm for a short period of time. It's one of those mm-hmm. things where you don't, you, you don't hear about that as much. We hear about the soldiers and sailors and, and Marines, but we don't hear about what happened on the home front as much. Uh, right. and you never know what great grandma might've done. <laughs> you know right right yeah and it's it's always interesting because there were people like oh yeah I, I, like it's actually it's randolph making women's college i was talking about and she was was uh this woman was like oh you know my grandma went to my great grandmother went to randolph making women's college and i actually think i have a picture of her working on a farm and i was like oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> i was so I was like, I need to see this. Yeah, I want to see that um, photo. But yeah, <laughs> I want to see that photo. Um, but yeah, it just it's just kind of interesting that then helps, you know, helps helps us today, you know, make those connections, you know, with something that did happen a hundred years ago. Um, you know, because you know, we are we are so much more familiar with what's happening, you know, in 1942, 43, and 44. Um, but but there's always a there's always a precedent. Something always has to happen before that for that for that to happen again so this mm-hmm. that's what you know what is that precedent and this is happens to be the women's uh or woman's land army of america um from 1917 to 1919 right we're still in the centennial of it like you said we are, we are. these these women are and they've been fascinating to learn more about and just interesting to read you know the things that were said about them um the way things were said about them um, you know, sometimes things are, you know, very, it's like, oh, who would you imagine who's chaperoning them today? It's very, <laughs> you know, there's, there's, a, there's a big, so there's a lot of social issue, um, you know, kind of drawn up within that as well. You know, the, the governor's wife is going to offer this, uh, this scholarship for young ladies. And you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's very interesting to give us a social view too of, um, of the United States um, in, in, during this war period as well. Right. Oh, yeah. It's it's fascinating. And and uh, your your talk in person was great. It was fascinating as well. And I learned so much. And uh, I'm a visual learner. So to see some of the slides of these women out there, you know, uh, in their kits and doing what they what they had to do to feed the local population was just fascinating to see some of those orchards from around Winchester and how big those things actually were. Uh, Yeah. What a tremendous undertaking for for women who had never probably never farmed before and now they're being thrown into something radically different and uh and to maybe some of their parents or their grandparents uh into a a world where that work was beneath them and now and now they're doing that uh for for a great benefit and a great cause it's it's such a fascinating thing to think about um because like we say in popular culture we always think of rosie the riveter but she had a mother and you know, these, this is kind of like that that format. This is this, these are these are these are uh, this, these these women would be Rosie's mothers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Uh, yeah. What is the uh, future of your work with this? Are you going to be planning any more research into it? <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. You know, all this research had had been done. Um, I started doing this research uh, really, first of all, to to put together uh, an impression uh, and to you know to to do a living history impression. 
um, at uh, starting with Fort Dodd State Historic Site uh, in Statesville, North Carolina. They have uh, every uh, every veteran or around Veterans Day, they have a military timeline, hmm. um, and they do uh, you know North Carolina military. You know from we get, they go all the way back. We have a, a great friend, a great friend of mine does uh, Roanoke expedition. Uh-huh. He comes out with armor and all that wow. great stuff. So we do all the way back from the 1580s up through the present day. Um, so I originally started to do that, um, but then living in Virginia, um, I started to research uh, these these young women, uh, these women in Virginia. Um, but now I'm in North Carolina, um, <laughs> and I don't live that far from Greensboro. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of itching to to get over to UNC Greensboro and start looking through their archives um, and you know learning, seeing if I can learn more about. Um, you know, about who these women were or and what they were doing. Um, I still need to get into the uh, the archives at Randolph-Macon uh, mm-hmm. in Lynchburg um, mm-hmm. and a couple of other places. Uh, Hollins was another one that I wanted to look at as well. Um, you know, now that uh, now that I, I hopefully, you know, I, I hate to be as a teacher. I hate to say I have summers off because I don't really. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I may I may have a little bit of extra time uh, and a little bit of extra money, you know, to to kind of take a couple of trips uh, to do some more research um, and to find some more out. Um, but I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what I want to do with it right now. Right now, I'm just kind of having a good time uh, delving into it. If anybody, you know, wants an article, I'd be happy to write one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know about a book. People keep telling me I should write a book. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, there is already, like I said, there's already a book out there on this. Um, Elaine Weiss's book is, is phenomenal. Uh, it's called Fruits of Victory. Um, that was where I started with. Um, I did figure out why she doesn't, you know, there are there are things that she, she kind of, touches on Virginia, Maryland. Uh, it's because there's a lot of there's a lot of buried information where you know I went to University of Virginia to find some to find some information. There was actually a, a training camp at UVA. I got all excited. I was like, oh, I bet UVA has got all of this research. Like, oh, the, no, they had a, a folder and they had about two things in there from oh. this training camp. Like, real? Oh my goodness! Wow. Um. So so yeah, it it is. It has been a it's been a joy and a pain to research because um, mm-hmm. you think something's going to be somewhere and then it's it's not. Right. Um, or you call up an archive and you say, hey, I, I, your your group ha- or your school had a farmerette program during such and such time. And they're like, I don't think we have anything on that. Um, <laughs> and they might. Mm-hmm. They just don't have it labeled as as such. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, right. So it's just one of those things where, you know, it's. It just takes some time. It's in a, it's um, in a folder marked miscellaneous somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's just like or farm. You know, or right. it's in a folder somewhere else. Um, you know, I spent I spent I don't know how many days in uh, the Hanley Library in Winchester, just scrolling through newspaper after newspaper after newspaper from 1917 through 1919 you know mm-hmm. all these little local newspapers have i mean i found i gleaned so much great information from the local from the winchester newspaper um but i had to sit there for several days and scroll through the newspapers right. Right. <laughs> so you know it's 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 which is what which is what a researcher does i mean that's what a historian does that's what we do um but uh, but it's one of those. It just takes it takes a while when that's not your primary job. So oh yeah, um, but it's, yeah oh yeah. But it's it's been it's been interesting. Um, and I've I've really enjoyed talking with people, um, about about this program, about the farmerettes, um, mm-hmm. and what they did and and who they were. So yeah, um, I just awesome. you know, I mean for me for me it's more educa- It's more about education. It's it's always about education. It's always right. about you know t- teaching people about. Hey, let me let me tell you about these really cool women. <laughs> right, right. And and you know it's a really cool topic to cover because some of my listeners are uh, college age uh, women, and mm-hmm. I, I want them to listen to this and think about okay, if this if this was you, how would you react to this? Uh, because right. you know it's just a fascinating thing. And you guys out there who are farmers or whatever, how would you react to seeing a bunch of uh, women who have never been on a farm before? Now you have to train them you know, to do this and all that. It's still, it's still a cultural, uh, experiment. 
Absolutely. In, in that regard. And imagine that a hundred years ago, what that was like. And it's just yeah. incredible. And you've never seen a woman wearing pants. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know? Well, now now in, she's wearing pants, you know. In South Carolina, you know, they were given the advice of that to be they that the uh, women would be better off to stay at home and raise families. Oh wow! Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They were actually, yeah. you know, looked straight straight at you know the national field secretary when she went to South Carolina. She was given this that little piece of advice: it, you'd be better home, you'd be better off to stay at home and raise your family. Right. Um. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, was, yeah. They they were up against a lot. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So it, it was. Yeah, it was, it was a big, it was, there was a big barrier to break there. Right, right. Yeah, this, it's a fascinating story. I hope you find out even more tidbits as you go through these archives because it's like a, it's like a treasure hunt. It's, it is anyway, oh. history is a treasure hunt, but this is a, a really niche thing, you know, yes. and it's like, you know, yes. it's in that, like we said, it's in that one folder marked miscellaneous or farm or mm -hmm. women or something like that. That yeah. no one's touched in thirty or forty years, and there's dust all over it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's fascinating, and and uh, it's it's a great story for people who want to hear more about a time of conflict, but not the conflict itself. They want to know how it's influencing culture, influencing logistics, influencing food. There's so much going on in this one little story, influencing uh, future political things. Uh, right. there's so much going on here and it's, it's fascinating and, and, uh, you know, it's a great story and I'm glad you could share it with us. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for asking me to share it with you. It's, like I said, it's, a, it's, it's a work in progress. I've been working on this for a couple of years. Um, and it's, it's just something that's, that's that I, I've really gotten into and I'm really, you know, it's near and dear to my heart and there is so much more information that we are so much out of time for me to tell you about, but there's still so much more I could talk about with these ladies. So that's awesome. That's awesome. We'll, we'll have to do a follow-up when you go to uh, some of these other places and get some more info oh, absolutely. and, and uh, find out, you know, in your travels, what was going on. Uh, absolutely. But, but we gave, uh, we gave Elaine Weiss a nice shout out. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can check out her book, fruits of victory. I actually, uh, came on here all you know letting you all know who are listening i actually came on here to to speak with anna and i have elaine weiss's book in front of me uh so <laughs> she's not lying it is the book to go to i have it in my collection uh it's a great book until anna writes her own and then i i want a signed copy so <laughs> so thank you anna for your time i really appreciate it and uh it, it's been a, a great discussion Thank you. So thank you all for listening.